It's January 18th, 2008, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you as always from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. At the end of World War II, Richard Strauss was still living in his house in Garmisch, which came within the American occupation zone. During the war years, Strauss had completed his last opera, Capriccio, and also a second horn concerto. Several subsequent works came to represent a kind of Indian summer of creativity for Strauss. Among those who visited him in Garmisch was an American soldier by the name of John Delancey, who in civilian life was principal oboist of the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. A prodigiously gifted oboist, Delancey had graduated from the Curtis Institute at 18 and had immediately been hired by Fritz Reiner, the notoriously demanding conductor, to play in the Pittsburgh Symphony. Only two years later, at the height of the Second War, Delancey joined the U.S. Army. For a while, Delancey played oboe in the military band, but he soon became a member of the Office of Strategic Services, a kind of forerunner of the CIA. By war's end, he was helping to ferret out remaining Nazi agents in the Bavarian Alps, and in May of 1945, rolled into the alpine resort town of Garmisch-Partenkirchen. And there, in the mess tent of the 10th Armored Division, John Delancey met his old friend Alfred Mann, who had been a Curtis classmate. Mann, who had emigrated from Germany to the U.S. in 1936, was also involved in these mopping-up operations for the Allies. I told him I wanted to go to Munich to see Richard Strauss, Delancey recalled. Alfred said, You don't have to go to Munich. Strauss is living in a villa just a thousand yards from where we're sitting. Well, since Delancey had played under Reiner, a famed Strauss specialist and an old friend of the composer, he was cordially invited by Strauss, who asked him to dinner several times that week. Now, Delancey didn't speak much German, and I think they ended up talking in French, in fact, Delancey could only screw up enough courage to ask the master one burning question. Quote, I told him how beautiful I thought the oboe melodies were in his Don Juan and the other Strauss works that Delancey had played as a young oboist in Fritz Reiner's Pittsburgh Symphony. And then, Delancey recalls, I asked him whether he had any special affinity for the instrument and if he'd ever considered writing an oboe concerto. Strauss's answer? No. Well, a few months later, Delancey, then a member of the intelligence branch of the U.S. Army, received a letter from his brother, a soldier in the South Pacific, and tucked away in the letter was a clipping from an Okinawa-based armed forces newspaper reporting, quote, the world will get a new oboe concerto from the pen of the famous Richard Strauss, 81-year-old composer, because an American soldier asked the master to write him a few bars of music for the oboe. Well, 
When Delancey returned to civilian life, he went on to have a lustrous career, 31 years as principal oboist of Eugene Ormandy's Philadelphia Orchestra, eight years as director of Philadelphia's famed Curtis Institute, and then the dean of music at Miami's New World School of the Arts. But probably nothing Delancey has done in music gave him greater satisfaction than knowing that it was he who inspired Richard Strauss to write his only oboe concerto, a work that almost every virtuoso oboist now plays. The concerto was completed in short score in September of 1945. The following month, Strauss, who was being investigated by the authorities for alleged collaboration with the Nazi regime, left with his wife to stay in Switzerland, where he completed the orchestration. In the first three months of 1946, three Strauss world premieres were given, of Metamorphosen and the Horn Concerto in Zurich in January and February, and the second Wind Sonatina in March. Now, for the oboe concerto, the soloist ended up being Marcel Saillet, who was the principal oboist of the Tonhalle Orchestra. It was somewhat a sign of Switzerland's coolness towards Richard Strauss at this juncture in his life that the composer was allocated a seat at the back of the hall, As it turns out, as the orchestra assembled, a woman in the front row noticed Strauss, went up to him, and led him to her front row seat. After the war, the oboe concerto was seized upon by oboists everywhere as a masterly addition to the very small number of concertos for their instrument. It's wholly characteristic of late Strauss in its wistfully autumnal coloring, and especially its use of harmonic explorations. Cantabile melodies flow with a prolific inventiveness. Well, here to talk about the concerto is the National Arts Centre Orchestra's principal oboist, Charles Heyman. Chip, welcome to the NACOcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Chip, there's a lot in this concerto that recalls the oboe themes from Strauss's early tone poems, especially Don Juan. And yet there's something substantively different. It seems to me that in some way the passion has been spent. Do you agree? I think that's a really nice way to think of it. Um, If you consider the fact that Strauss was in his 80s, um, I think he was uh, deeply touched by the destruction of his homeland. And I think what he felt was um, the underpinnings of the German culture, uh, especially in the the Second World War, but two wars, one after the other, you can imagine. Um, So it's funny because I think Strauss has a reputation sometimes as a, as a Nazi sympathizer or uh, somehow um, being complicit in what happened. And in fact, um, I think you hear in this music um, a real sense of nostalgia for the good old days of German culture and especially Mozart, um, the gracefulness, the elegance of the way Mozart used his material, um, I think we see a lot of that here. We don't see the burning passion of Also Sprach Zarathustra and um, the avant-garde uh, operas, you know, Elektra and things like that. You, you, this is a totally different kind of um, musical uh, musical message that he's sending here. So um, it is exactly uh, what you said. It's sort of as if, um, you know how... As we get older, we tend to prefer um, cars that are more plush and comfortable as opposed to the racy sports cars. This is sort of maybe more like the uh, the 
luxury sedan. <laughs> but what's interesting about Leitch Strauss, and of course, is an extraordinarily burst, extraordinary burst of just the most amazing works just in these several years to the end of his life, especially with the four last songs, which is probably, you know, one of the great masterpieces of the century. He didn't forsake complexity. Because the music, there's a lot going on in, the, in these late concertos. I know I sometimes play the Duo Concertante, which is a concerto for clarinet and bassoon and orchestra from almost the same period. There is so much going on. And the oboe concerto is like this, isn't it? It is. Um, he's often got two or three or four ideas happening at once. If you look at the score, it can be baffling for somebody who's never read a, a score of Strauss. Um, and yet somehow it shows his genius at this stage of his career that he was able to keep it clean and and transparent, despite the fact that there are several things happening at once. Um, it, it almost recalls um, Baroque music in the sense of the mastery of somebody like Bach, able to have a cohesive musical message using several musical ideas at the same time. Take me on a little journey through through the Strauss concerto, starting with the with the first movement. It has a, like in much of late Strauss, has a very simple motive, doesn't it? It's extremely simple. Um, it's four notes, actually two notes repeated. Da-da-da-dum. It's uh, a rising second. So what you hear is the cellos are playing this little four-note idea, and then the oboe comes in in the third bar with this sort of cantilena idea where um, it's just a flowing, lovely, um, outdoorsy, breezy kind of melody um, that's superimposed on top of this little motive. And this motive that you've heard really goes throughout the whole piece. You'll hear it many times in the first movement and then leading into the second movement as well, and then we, we come to it later in the third movement too. I mentioned in my introduction that uh, the great work for String Ensemble, the Metamorphosen, had preceded this work. There is a quote here from Metamorphosen, and in a way I think it's also a quote from something uh, even earlier, from, from Eroka Symphony, is it not? Well, with Metamorphosen, that piece was really a lament for... Um, what he perceived as the loss of uh, German culture. And this four-note repeated idea, ta 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 ti ta dum ta dum ta And in Metamorphosen, in that particular quote, he uses the, the dotted rhythm that we hear in the principal theme of the funeral march of the Eroka Symphony. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the theme from Metamorphosen. He leaves off the dotted rhythm in the concerto, but he has this similar four repeated notes. Let's just go back and listen to a quick clip from the Funeral March of the Eroka Symphony. What happened in the Metamorphose and how does the quote work from that? And that, from Richard Strauss's Metamorphosen, we see the connection to, to the Third Symphony of Beethoven. Now, show us the link here in the concerto. This theme that comes, and it almost seems like a, a looking back with nostalgia. Um, Does it have the same pathos as the funeral march of uh, Eroka? No, because of its context. 
but I would say it's a way for him to include something a little bit darker, as if the sun has gone behind a cloud for a moment. And you'll find that this idea of the four repeated notes comes back in the other movements as well. Um, it, it's the basic material for the opening theme of the second movement, and it also makes an appearance with the English horn in the third movement, where it's developed a little bit more fully. Now, one of the things that's immediately evident to anyone uh, who's listening to this concerto for the first time is that it's an extraordinarily taxing challenge for the oboist. It seems to me that, that you have to have lungs the size of, I don't know, of the, of the gas tank in a Hummer or something in order to get through this. How the heck do you play this without falling over in a dead faint? Well, you know, the preparation in a way isn't that much different from what we normally have to do. In fact, in the orchestral literature, we often have to play very long solos, and I can think of several, the Tchaikovsky Fourth, for example, the opening of the second movement, very long solo. Um, even in uh, Strauss's, Strauss's own works, uh, Don Juan, for example, the big oboe solo, very long-winded. So we're already uh, trained to do that. So the kind of work I would normally do with long tones and um, just playing long phrases. Um, there are long phrases throughout this whole piece where um, it benefits just from practicing these large segments over and over to develop the physical stamina. It's sort of like being a marathon runner. Is the physical stamina in the lips and in the lungs? It's a good question. Uh, there are several different systems working together. You've got the lips, you've got the lungs, you've got all of the supporting muscles that help keep you upright and keep everything working. So you're really working many things at the same time, but uh, a lot of it depends on the reed as well. You need to have a reed that is comfortable enough and, and free enough blowing that you're not going to get tired. Sometimes when we play in the orchestra, we can play on a reed that has a little bit more to it. Um, but in a piece like this, you really have to choose wisely. Have you ever run a marathon? No, I haven't. Is this the equivalent of running a marathon, do you think? Well, it is. And the kind of training that I've been doing, physically speaking, is much more like a marathon runner than a sprinter. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of walking. I do some other kinds of cardiovascular exercise. Um, and it's also important just to play a lot of uh, these long passages on a regular basis just to keep yourself in shape. There is a technique that some wind players use called circular breathing. Is this something that's in your repertoire? It's something I'm, I'm working on, I have to say. Um, I, I find it a really interesting technique. It can be very useful. The problem with oboe players is we're all, always filling up with too much excess air. So it's a way around that where we can play continuously. If you think of um, taking a glass of water with a drinking straw, and the way you do it is you blow into the straw and create bubbles, mm -hmm. and at the same time, you fill up your cheeks with air, blow the air through the straw, and inhale through your nose. So you're blowing out through your mouth, inhaling through your nose. That's the way teachers usually get their students to learn how to do that technique. So you can try that at home if you're interested in, in uh, being able to do circular breathing. Of course, the Australian didgeridoo is the foremost example of requirement for circular breathing. Sure, sure. It's a little, now, I, I use the technique myself a little bit, and it, of course, you're very limited to the quality of sound that you can make when you're creating the tone on the instrument entirely through uh, pressure from the cheek muscles during that moment when you're 
grabbing air quickly through the nose. Now, you've got your oboe next to you, Chip, and I would like you just to show us a little bit of an example of the kind of tricks that will happen with circular breathing. Okay, well, the amazing thing about this is if you, if you circular breathe correctly, nobody should really notice that there's anything going on, huh? As exactly. If, you know, it's, it's almost the same as being able to just have big enough lungs that you can play for a minute without taking a breath. In the case of someone who's a real virtuoso at this, you can play for 20 minutes without taking a breath and without stopping the tone. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I think um, audiences are at at once fascinated by this idea and also sometimes a little uncomfortable with it. In fact, the more people I talk to, the more tell me that they find it um, distressing when a musician doesn't take a breath. There's something human about taking a breath. And um, so one has to make interpretive choices in this concerto because oftentimes Strauss will write these phrase marks that continue one phrase to the next to the next. And um, it's almost as if he had no real interest in the physical demands. He simply wanted long phrases. So we have to make a choice about where we'll breathe, if we'll breathe. Um, I tend to err on the side of taking breaths in good places. Um, I think it makes the audience more comfortable. I, help, I think it helps to show phrases. Um, and uh, I, I think it, it can still work very, very well, even with no circular breathing. So I've yet to make my decision. There's a couple of crucial places where it really gets tiring that I may do a couple of quick circular breathing uh, techniques there. Getting back to the first movement of the concerto, there's a very beautiful moment here, which I'm just going to pull from our recording here. And by the way, I'm airing terribly and not telling our audience that we are using today a very beautiful recording of the Strauss Oboe Concerto by my friend Peter Cooper of the Colorado Symphony. It's a recording with Neville Mariner conducting the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, and we're very grateful for Peter and his record company to allow us to use this recording. Let's take a listen to this very special moment near the, near the end of the first movement. You know, that's so beautiful, and what's interesting is that it's really just another use of this rising couplet motive from the very beginning of the piece, but um, we see it a little bit quicker here, but um, in the four last songs in September, um, that's a motive that's used both in the vocal text near the beginning and then in this absolutely gorgeous horn solo at the end of that song. Um, it's almost the exact same material. Da -dee 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 -dee. So beautiful, isn't it? Chip, the second movement of the concerto. Take, take me through it. Well, 
first I should say that all the movements are seamless in this concerto. So he takes us so beautifully from the end of the first movement into the second movement, again with that rising two-note motive, da-da-da-dum. And he just slides us into B-flat major. And the opening theme is a typical Strauss song, I think. It's very vocal. Um, it's the kind of melody that he gave us in, in all of the great works, the, the operas and the tone poems. And again, it's built on this idea of the four repeated notes, ta, 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 that he used in Metamorphosen. This movement is primarily a ternary form movement. It's very classical in its structure. There's a middle section that is um, basically a variation on other material that he's already used, and then uh, the reprise of the initial material with some variations. And what's really special about this movement is the end of the movement. I think it's every oboe player's favorite place in the piece. And um, everything gets very quiet, and it's just a little a closing statement that um, is very intimate and very tender. And I think for me, it shows Strauss's um, maybe a love letter to Mozart or something like that, saying thank you so much for uh, all of that wonderful material. It's, it's very operatic and, and somehow intimate at the same time. Um, and I think it's where we feel Strauss's most personal connection and personal maybe loss at this point for um, what he feels has disappeared as a result of these wars. So at the end of the second movement, we have an interruption for two bars from the orchestra and then a cadenza. And it's interesting because it's an accompanied cadenza. We have these pizzicato punctuations that come in the strings um, every bar or so. And um, it's a conversation, again, between the oboe and the orchestra. Um, it's quite virtuosic. It's all over the oboe with lots of big runs and um, quite exciting. It's probably the most dramatic place in the whole piece. Um, but, you know, every concerto needs a good cadenza, doesn't it? every concerto needs to is a certain kind of attitude. And I think you and I who make our living playing in a symphony orchestra who only occasionally step out in front of an orchestra, you're smiling because I think you know what I'm going to say which is how difficult it is to shed the kind of constraints the expressive constraints the whole paradigm of orchestral playing and to become something else when you stand in front of an orchestra. It, there's a, quite a shift, isn't there? It is. It's a really different way of thinking about how you're going to project your personality, your sound, your musical ideas. Everything is a bit bigger in scope. Um, you're not thinking about blending with your colleagues like you are most of the time, especially in the, the German Romantic music. This is definitely German Romantic tradition. But you have to be much more like a violin soloist or a piano soloist where you take control of, of the stage in a very different kind of way. So somehow we have to find a way to 
project not only our sound and the, the quality of sound, but just bigger gestures. I think of it almost like being a stage actor. You know, I remember there's so many examples here of the differences between the the winds, wind soloist and the, the wind player within the orchestra. One of my most profound memories is the first time I heard the great German oboist Heinz Holliger, Swiss oboist Heinz Holliger play. And Chip, he played a performance, uh, perhaps it was Marcello, I don't remember, and to be honest with you, everything he played, if had I played the oboe, I would have made completely different choices. I would every phrase seemed upside down to me. The tone is not what we're what we are encouraged to make in North American style. And I can stand go on a long list here, and yet it was fabulous. It was absolutely fabulous. He completely transcended my small minded thinking about how to approach the oboe or how to approach a double reed instrument. And he was just so much uh, into a huge communication of the music with the audience. And that was a great experience for me, just realizing how how much in a box my thinking often is. I think we have to get out of that box when we get up in front of the orchestra. So I always tell my students to think about being a singer. Listen to great singers. Listen to soloists. If you want to understand how to do that, you have to act and think and be uh, truly a soloist. So it is a paradigm shift for us, but it's fun to do once in a while. So I'm excited to be able to try to get out of that box a little bit for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> We've just heard the beginning of the third movement of the concerto now. And once again, Strauss is using a very small germ of musical material, just two falling notes, a falling fourth. And this basic motive um, appears all the way through the, throughout the movement in different uh, permutations. And it's really a dancing, lively, jumping, uh, exuberant sort of theme. Even though it's falling, there's all sorts of playfulness going on here. It's it's really um, spirited and happy music. You know, so much of the work of late work of Strauss is like this, where there is constant repetition of a very simple idea. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I cannot think in music of any other composer who so used a simple theme apart from Fifth Symphony of Beethoven, First right. Movement. Exactly. That's what I was thinking as well. And I think that's definitely... A composer at the end of his career looking back to the very best that he could find, and of course it was Beethoven. And it was Mozart, I suppose, as well in the, the use of the vocal line. The second subject of this uh, third movement uh, is, a, is a good example of the complexity in late Strauss, where there's a number of things going on at once. Yeah, it's true. At the opening of the second subject, we've got the oboe playing a triplet pattern, and in the violins, cellos, and bassoon, we have a duple pattern going on. It's in contrary motion. It's a totally different theme, and yet somehow the two work very well together. But we see um, something that you might think of as dense and hard to follow, and yet there's still a clarity to it all. That's the mastery of his use of this material. He was still a virtuoso at 81. He still had his wits. And a marvelous moment towards the end of the final movement here where that theme from the Metamorphosen and its uh, original uh, 
original birth in the Eroica Symphony comes back here, the oboe with cor anglais, isn't it? Yeah, it's that four repeated notes. Ta 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 ti da 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 dum. It's almost the same quotation from the Metamorphosen, except of course, again, there's no dotted figure from the Eroica. It's um, simply a falling motive after the repeated notes. And the fact that he uses the English horn with the oboe, these two brothers in the oboe family, if you like, um, it creates a very nostalgic feel, I think, more so than if it were a stringed instrument. Um, so you really have this uh, yearning kind of quality because of the use of the English horn there. And um, the English horn and oboe are in thirds and really function almost as if they were sitting next to each other in the section. So the challenge will be to make that perfectly together with my colleague Francine Schutzman, even though she'll be about 40 feet behind me. So I'll be listening for her. And Chip, we will be listening listening to you and with your beautiful sound as always in the orchestra. I'm very much looking forward to this, this performance coming up in several weeks' time with the National Arts Center Orchestra. And I wish you the very best with this, and I thank you for coming into the studio today. Many thanks to you as well. Well, that's all for this edition of the NACOcast. I want to remind our listeners that we were listening today to a very beautiful recording of the Strauss Oboe Concerto with Peter Cooper, oboist, and Sir Neville Mariner conducting the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. This is available on the Summit label, and you can check it out at summitrecords.com. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget... You can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. Don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Explore the Symphony, with Marjolaine Laroche and Jean-Jacques Van Blasselet. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. N-A-C-O-C-A-S-T. And my friends, something new this week. The NACOcast has a Facebook group. Drop in for a chat on any of our NACOcast topics and meet other NACOcast listeners. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard for the new media team here at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. 